Well, welcome to the next episode, episode 16 of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician, a prof at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. That's an online uh, primary care reference from Wiley. It includes over 800 chapters, all of the poems dating back to 1994, Cochrane abstracts, thousands of interactive calculators, and lots more. So check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. A primary Care Update is our summary of recent research that we think is relevant to primary care medicine. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent any medical advice or the endorsement of any product. I'm joined again today by my good friends, Dr. John Hickner, a family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State University. Hello, guys. Good Hello. afternoon. Yeah, you know, I, I really want to tell listeners, we do appreciate getting comments, feedback. Uh, we had one listener who pointed, and I think Henry's going to talk a little more about this later, who pointed out that we use the term primary care physicians a lot, which leaves out nurse practitioners and PAs, who also, of course, deliver a lot of high quality primary care in the U.S. Um, so for that, we apologize. It was unintentional. It's a great point and a good reminder to us. We'll, we'll try to do better moving forward. We've got some great studies to talk about today, and the first one is from John. Yes, I've been wondering about the answer to this question for a long time, the question being how long do artificial hips and knees last? So we have an excellent study published in Lancet by Evans, Evans, and colleagues uh, in 2019, volume 393, page 647. They uh, called out studies and also used registry data to determine outcomes of hip and knee surgery that reported at least a 15-year follow-up time frame. They found 44 studies of hip joint replacements, 30 knee joint replacement papers, and the national registries from Denmark, Finland, New Zealand, Norway, and Sweden, notice not the United States, included more than 200,000 hip joint replacements and nearly 300,000 knee joint replacements. So lots of data, lots of data. Well, here's the bottom line. For hips and knees that last at least 15 years, for the hips, those who last at least 25 years, between 78 and 58 percent. So let's average that out at around, let's say, 65 percent lasts for that long. Uh, for the knees, about an 82% 25-year survival, so just as long. So the news is good. Those joints are likely to last 25 years in most folks. Now, remember, this doesn't include short-term failures. So if a joint failed within the first few years, they were not included in the registry. But if you make it through the first 15 years, chances are your joint will last at least another 10 years. Very good news. Yeah, that is good news, especially as someone, as we were talking earlier, who is looking at a one or two knee replacements and who's 57 and doing the math. Um, you know, I think I'll wait a few more years, but uh, it's encouraging that hopefully I'll just need one if yes. things go well. So that's that's good news. Henry, any comments? Of course, I always have comments. So the, these early do. failures are, in fact, always a concern. I don't know how common they are or the reasons for failure, but this could be another example of Nietzschean action. That which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Well, I think another problem with this literature is that we don't have randomized trials comparing, uh, you know, just randomizing patients to the striker or the Boston Scientific or the whatever 
joint and then seeing how they do over time. We've never had that. You could argue you would have to follow these patients for a very long time. And so, you know, that would be difficult to do. But, you know, by now we could have had some some decent data, at least, and especially learning more about early failures and learning about the impact of patient characteristics. So unfortunately, when you have a trial with four, you know, arms, they're going to be one winner and three losers. And I think that probably the companies know that. I think we're ready for the quiz, Henry. Sure. Yeah. So I'm sitting here on a visiting my sister sitting on a dark on a dock on a lake i've got an adult beverage i'm enjoying the sounds of birds and the aroma of the pines and there's a great blue heron that's fishing for its dinner just off the so it's very idyllic and it's really hard to be focused on um quizzes and things like that today but i'll i'll give it my best we so appreciate your heroic efforts <laughs> so as you pointed out this is actually inspired by the, um, the, the listener who challenged us. And so for this quiz, I'm going to use the term advanced practice professionals, which includes nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. So here, this is the provocative question for the day. Advanced practice professionals, A, are a brand new type of healthcare professional who work exclusively in primary care settings, B, have variable training requirements. C, provide uniformly inferior quality of care care compared with physicians. D, have been shown to reduce health care costs. Stay tuned. Okay. I I, I think I've got a pretty good idea on this one, but you fooled me before. So uh, it's time for my poem. This one is uh, the title of the article is Subacromial Decompression Surgery for Adults with Shoulder Pain, a Clinical Practice Guideline. This is from the BMJ, published in 2019. And what they were looking at was patients with subacromial pain syndrome. So typically that's pain in the outer arm when lifting the arm. So that kind of painful arc, difficulty moving uh, the arm with forward flexion, in particular external rotation, abduction, less strength, and often uh, difficulty sleeping due to pain, especially sleeping on the side. Um, The pathophysiology is kind of poorly understood. Cadaver studies led to us thinking it might have something to do with an impingement, but um, also some partial uh, tears and uh, rotator cuff pathology as well is implicated. So this guideline committee tried to answer the question, should patients with anterior lateral shoulder pain lasting at least three months without a history of trauma be considered for surgery to decompress that potentially impinging subacromial space? The guideline committee included patients, clinicians, methodologists. There were no financial conflicts of interest. And what I like was they first said, so what's an important difference? And for pain, they said one and a half points on a 10-point scale is clinically important. For function, they said it was about eight, just over eight points on a 100-point scale. They found seven studies with just over 1,000 patients. Mainly, they were basing their results on two randomized trials that used sham surgery as the control. So we know having surgery has its own placebo effect. So sham surgery is the best kind of study to evaluate this. Both had just over 200 patients, followed them for between six and 24 months. And basically, both studies found no clinically or statistically significant differences between groups with regard to pain or function or quality of life. Based on all of this, the group strongly recommends that surgery be avoided since it didn't produce any important improvement in pain, function, or quality of life. 
and actually was associated with an increased risk of frozen shoulders. So bottom line, whatever you call it, impingement syndrome, rotator cuff, bursitis, surgical decompression of the subacromial space in these patients without a history of trauma isn't helpful, may even be harmful. So conservative therapy is still best. John, Henry, any comments? This is consistent with another fairly recently published randomized trial that may not have made it into that meta-analysis in which they randomized about 100 patients to, per group to either physical therapy, uh, surgery, shaving the bottom of the acromion process, or just arthroscopy. And uh, similarly, there was no difference in six-month and 12-month outcomes. Okay, good. More evidence of that. Yeah, and we've right. reviewed a whole bunch of different studies, individual trials over the years, and pretty much all of them come to the same conclusions. Not only is it surgery that's no better than conservative measures, neither is prolotherapy, platelet-rich plasma injections, stem cell injections. So what does all this mean going forward? Well, short of maybe shoulder replacement surgery, comfort measures, exercise, activity modification, there's really not a lot else that's out there. Maybe our Department of Defense might be coming up with something related to the use of nanotechnology. So stay tuned on some other more fancy, sophisticated stuff that will eventually be shown to be ineffective. Nanotechnology. Okay. Sign me up. Yeah, the the whole stem cell thing is just this huge, um, you know, my suspicion is kind of a very scammy kind of thing because there's really no evidence. And, And where there have been studies, they've been just ridiculously conflicted and biased and, you know, unreliable. And so, yeah, a a lot of this, I think high doses of opiates still work, but probably maybe not the best idea. Um, Yeah. It it seems like whenever orthopedic surgeons start doing uh, properly controlled studies of the procedures they like to do, uh, very often they end up showing that they're not nearly as effective as they, they once thought. Except for those knee and hip joint replacements. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 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 And there have been, yeah, clearly uh, some pretty good evidence of that they've done waitlisted studies of, of knee joint replacement that we reviewed a couple of years ago and, and clearly a uh, benefit. Um, okay. So Henry, you're going to tell us a little bit about ketamine, talking about trendy things. Yeah, so this is slightly different. We're sticking with a musculoskeletal theme, this issue, it seems. So this is a paper by Fry et al. published in JAM Pediatrics in February, and it asks the question, in children with traumatic limb injuries, is intranasal ketamine as effective as intranasal fentanyl in reducing moderate to severe pain? Now, this was a randomized trial that took place in emergency departments. They took children age 8 to 17 who had moderate to severe pain. It was that they had a visual analog scale of 35 millimeters on a 100 meter, millimeter scale. They had an acute painful injury to an extremity. They were randomized to receive either a single dose of intranasal ketamine or a single dose of intranasal fentanyl. And you can look at the paper for this specific dosing. Over 80% of the kids in each group actually had a fracture. So these were pretty severe injuries. After administering the medications, they evaluated the 
pain levels at 15, 30, and 60 minutes. And at baseline, the level of pain was pretty similar in both groups, 75 out of 100 millimeters. And over each specific interval, they each had about the same amount of pain reduction. So each of these reductions were clinically meaningful, but still at the end of the study, nearly a quarter of the kids still needed some kind of rescue analgesic. And so um, there's an, an important message in here in that when you have a kid with a, with a fracture, you really do need to stay on top of their pain and, and make sure you're managing it properly. In terms of harms, the those children who were treated with ketamine actually had more adverse side effects, almost three quarters of them compared to about a third who were treated with fentanyl. And the main side effects were um, drowsiness, dizziness, and discuse, dis, discuse, funny taste in their mouth. Let's leave it at that. I was going to ask you what discuse is, so thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> so um, in this particular study, uh, it certainly seems that having comparable degrees of pain relief, um, the fentanyl having fewer adverse effects seems like that's the way to start. Okay. Is that, um, are there other options though? I mean, it seems like jumping to fentanyl seems like quite a, uh, maybe aggressive, uh, pain management. What do you think about that? Yeah, there are certainly plenty of other options such as morphine and the like. The the main issue here was that they weren't they weren't really clear why they chose the intranasal route as opposed to any other parenteral route of administration and why they chose those over any other analgesics. Well, clearly, you know, less uh, traumatic to, you know, put having put in many an IV into to kids in the past, um it's never fun and um so if you can avoid that, of course if they really have significant trauma, they're going to have an IV in anyway. But uh, yeah, interesting study. Um, John, any comments before you move on to your next poem? No, I mean, start with the ibuprofen and then escalate as needed. Yeah. All right. So you're going to tell us a little bit about fibula fractures. Yes. One more musculoskeletal paper. This is quite interesting because this is something that family physicians and other primary care health providers can do in your office. This was a study looking at management of stable fibular fractures, so the ankle mortis is fine. They enrolled 247 patients into one of three groups, either cast for three weeks, cast for six weeks, or splint for three weeks, and the splint could be taken off as the patient desired. They assessed the outcomes and found that in terms of healing, pain, you name it, the all three groups were comparable. There were two instances of non-union, but they were in the CAS group. So I think that was just a fluke. So uh, again, this is something you can do yourself. You can use a splint rather than a CAS for simple fibula fracture. And three weeks is sufficient. Yeah, I remember spending a lot of time learning how to do casting in my uh, training, in my residency, and and unfortunately never doing it in practice once I left training. But um, yeah, this is a great thing. And and certainly many of our more rural colleagues are are doing splinting, are doing casting, I'm sure. And so this is good information. Um, Henry, are you ready to... Yeah, this is yet another minimalist approach that appears to be as good as other approaches and is probably safer. Nietzsche must be laughing in his grave. Um, okay, in the original German, no less. So uh, 
Henry, time to tell us the answer to the quiz. All right. So the quiz, advanced practice professionals, A, are a brand new type of healthcare professional who work exclusively in primary care settings. B, have variable training requirements. C, provide uniformly inferior quality of care compared with physicians. D, have been shown to reduce healthcare costs. Well, this is timely because my colleague, Aaron Sarzinski, and I just had a commentary accepted for publication in the American Journal of Managed Care, where we compare and contrast advanced advanced practice professionals and physicians in many different dimensions. We found that the advanced practice professionals, specifically nurse practitioners, arose in the 1960s in the United States, primarily in response to primary care shortages. Over time, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants have been actually able to practice in many specialty areas, not just primary care. While the training requirements vary considerably among the various types of practitioners, they are uniformly less, much less than that required for training physicians. While there may be perceptions of quality of care that are varied by profession, the studies actually don't support that. When you look at the comparisons of outcomes, it turns out they're pretty mixed. There was a recent Cochrane systematic review, 18 randomized trials that basically showed some comparable outcomes in blood pressure control and patient satisfaction, but the Visits were longer among the nurse practitioners, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. More often, the nurse practitioners and PAs used protocols than the physicians. Um, again, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I suspect that pilots would say, you know, we, we actually do the checklist every single time we fly the plane, so maybe using protocols isn't a bad thing. I'm not aware, however, that nurse practitioners and physician's assistants are used much in other countries. Now, economic factors and population-based data on mortality, however, are largely unstudied. So the big difference that we found was that there was huge differences in training requirements and lots of opportunity for clinicians of any variety to take care of our patients. Yeah, I, I'm just coming back from a couple of months in Ireland. I'll be going back Monday. And um, learning about the Irish health system, it's something they don't really have very much of as these advanced practice professionals. And in a lot of other countries, there are, are countries that are starting to develop that, again, in response to primary care shortages, which they're seeing in Ireland as well as other parts of, of Europe. So uh, I think it's something we certainly need to study more. You know, we've, we've all worked with, uh, you know, terrific PAs and nurse practitioners in, in our uh, practices. And I think figuring out the best way that we can work together for our patients is, is you know, an important goal. So thanks, guys. Um, I hope you all enjoyed today's discussion out there. Please tell your friends. Check out EssentialEvidencePlus.com, and we will talk to you soon with more primary care updates.